0: From Luminary Media and Built-It Productions, it's wisdom from the top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, former Google and Yahoo executive Marissa Meyer.
1: You know, there was lots of different factors to weigh, and it was still even a hard decision to make. And I waded through with a good friend of mine, a guy named Andre Veneer, and Andre gave me what I still consider the best advice uh, I've ever gotten, which is just go to bed, and when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you think of, pick that. And so I did. I went to sleep. I woke up in the morning, and when I woke up, Google was the first thing I
0: thought of. Marissa Meyer broke into the all-boys club of engineers at Google and went on to run Yahoo, where she spent years trying to prevent its eventual decline. So if you started using the Internet regularly in the mid to late 1990s, there's a pretty good chance at some point your homepage was Yahoo.com. For millions of people, Yahoo was the Internet. It was the first place you went to search or where you got news, possibly where you got your email. But by the mid-2000s, Google started to cast a long shadow over Yahoo. And while Yahoo was still a major force, the company was being out-innovated and outmatched by its upstart rival. By 2012, Yahoo had gone through seven CEOs in just five years, and the company was in crisis. And so the board decided to place its hopes in Marissa Meyer. At the time, there was a lot of excitement about the decision. Marissa had been the first female engineer at Google where she started her career at age 23. She was brilliant and she had nearly a decade of executive experience under her belt. So at the age of just 37, Marissa Meyer left Google to see if she could help turn around the ailing tech giant Yahoo. Her tenure would last five years. It was a period of incredible optimism, but also incredible challenges. At one point under her leadership, The stock price doubled. But as you'll hear, in the end, even Marissa Meyer was unable to save the company. She would preside over its sale under intense pressure from activist investors. And while her legacy at Yahoo is mixed, Marissa Meyer helped pave the way for more women to lead tech companies. She was almost destined to become a big player in tech, even from an early age, when her mom taught her how to code.
1: She actually was the person who uh, introduced me to computers because she went for a graphic design course where they had her learn logo. So she was learning to move the turtle around the screen to make drawings and pictures. Uh, and so, I'd, you know, she had me, I was I thinking in the third grade program a little bit alongside of her um and that was you know I kind of had my exposure to computer science then in the 3rd grade and then not again until high school but actually my first exposure to computer science and prog- was programming the logo turtle on a commodore 64 and it was actually for one of my mother's art classes ironically as opposed to one of my father's engineering tasks hmm.
0: so when you got to high school is that when you started to get into computers and what did that mean like were you Programming or, or 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 not quite yet. Uh,
1: I took uh, one. I think I took one or two computer science courses in uh, in high school, but they were pretty basic. Um, but I really didn't get back to computers until I enrolled at Stanford.
0: Did you? I mean, I have to assume that you know you're a super talented high school student. You probably were at the top of your class or or close to it in high school. And I have to assume that there were adults who were saying, Marissa, you know, you're going to go places. Um, what did you think you wanted to do with your life when you were 17 or 18 years uh,
1: old? Well, I developed a vision when I was 12 or 13 that I wanted to be a pediatrician. And then as I was doing my college search, I was like, okay, I want to be a pediatric neurosurgeon. Hmm. So when I came to Stanford, I was really certain that that's ultimately what I wanted to be. And then when I got here to Stanford, I... Um, ultimately realized that there were a couple of different things going on. One, I realized I wasn't as interested in cutting up a brain Mm. as I was interested in learning how did it work? Hmm. How do you learn? How do you express yourself? How do you reason? Um, And I also realized that I was getting an education that was coming at a great cost to my parents, um, but wasn't that differentiated from what I saw my friends doing at some of the other schools that I had turned down um, at less cost. So I was like, okay, I'm spending more to go further away um, and I'm not getting an education. Like I went home after freshman year and I was like, you know, we're learning literally off the same flashcards, the same carbon, um, the same carbon atom sets built to build off of a lot of the same curriculum. And then between my, and my freshman year, In the spring, I took my first computer science course, which was actually called Computer Science for Non-Majors. It filled a requirement. In the first day of class, the professor said, you know, there's 400 of you here. Extensive studies of Stanford students have shown exactly two of you will go on to do any future computer science at all. Wow. Uh, So I'll make this easy for you. And it was interesting because this was spring of 1994, and they had us, for example, some of our homework was, you know, uh, install the Mosaic browser and go and find out you know, hmm. the price of, there were some restaurants in Palo Alto that had put their menus online and you know, find out the price of a certain dish. Uh, and then hmm. we also did some programming and I think I got an A plus in the course and I thought it was wow. just great, but I thought I was done. I thought that it was just like, okay, it was kind of a one and done for me. Went home yeah. freshman year and then on my way back to Stanford, I was studying the course catalog trying to figure out what... I was going to take an addition um, to sort of the pre-med core that I would need to take sophomore year, and I found uh, a program at Stanford called Symbolic Systems. And as I read about it, Symbolic Systems was ultimately a student-designed major that then became uh, an available major in the school, but it was interdisciplinary and it combined uh, psychology, philosophy, linguistics, and computer science. Psychology is cognitive psychology. How do people learn? Philosophy is logic, how do people reason? Linguistics is how do people express themselves? And computer science, can you create a computer that can do the same, that can learn and reason and express itself? And, you know, that just really caught my fancy because I was like, okay... These are a lot of things I'm interested in. There are actually specializations and concentrations you could do. My concentration would ultimately become artificial intelligence. But there were concentrations there for neuroscience. A lot of the areas I was really interested in and excited about. And I thought, wow, this really actually hones in on exactly what I'm interested in, which is less about the physiology of the brain and a lot more about how it works. The only discipline I didn't know a lot about was linguistics. Uh, And so... It turned out the chair of the department, Tom Wasau, was teaching introduction uh, to syntax that fall, and he also happened to be the chair of symbolic systems, so I went and saw him and said, you know, I'm thinking about becoming a symbolic systems major. And I knew that Professor Wausau would try to sell me on it, but he did it in the most interesting way, uh, which is that he said, you should absolutely become a symbolic Systems student, because all of the most interesting Stanford students are. <laughs> it was almost like okay, one, you'll be surrounded by really interesting people who will challenge you, but two is almost this kind of you know backhanded compliment or statement of if you aren't symbolic systems, you're not interesting, which is obviously not true. Right, right. But it kind of egged me on into the major, and then I took the linguistics class and really liked it, uh, and I did go on then to major in it. And I, but I will say that you know some of my most interesting classmates at Stanford. And even now, across the tech industry, we're symbolic systems students. Yeah. Um, Reed yeah. Hoffman. I mean, Reed Hoffman, Scott Borstall, right. Chris Cox um, from Facebook are all symbolic systems students.
0: Hmm. Yeah. So you you get your undergrad degree uh, in symbolic systems, and then I guess you stay on at Stanford for for like another year to get a master's degree um, in computer science, and then you go on and, and work. For for Google, I think you've become like the the 20th employee or something. How did that happen? How did you get get the job?
1: Uh, Well, as I said, I loved school. So I didn't just stay on for a one-year master's. I stayed on for a two-year master's. Um, But it was really nice. As you became a grad student, I was teaching, and I liked teaching a lot. Uh, I built deeper relationships with the faculty and got offered more interesting research projects uh, and opportunities. So, for example, I got to work on a computer science curriculum for the country of Bermuda. On a special hmm. assignment through my one of my mentors, Eric Roberts. And it also meant that between those two years, I had a summer internship. I went to the Union Bank of Switzerland, and I worked in their research lab in Zurich. Hmm. Uh, and there I worked um, on a program that basically accompanied a browser, because this is now four or five years after my freshman year. So browsers are getting to be you know four or five years old.
0: Sure.
1: um it was an it was an accompaniment to a a browser. That watched where you went on the web and then used collaborative filtering to suggest relevant sites to you and to other people using the same companion software Hmm. so for example if you went to sites a b and c and then later someone went to site b it would recommend sites a and c i came back to stanford uh, and professor eric roberts hired me to lecture Mm -hmm. for an intro uh, computer science course So I got back into town and when I went to see him about to get started in preparing my class, Um, he said, well, tell me a little bit about your research from the summer. And I told him about it. Um, And he said, you know, that's interesting. It's somewhat similar to the research being done by Larry Page and Sergey Brin up on the fourth floor. It's like they're looking not at where people actually go on the web, they're not looking at browser traffic, but they're looking at the link structure of the web in terms of where people could go and trying to find related and relevant sites. And they're using it to build a search engine. And he's like, and they just left to start a company, and I can't remember the name of the company. So, you know, it was 1999 or 1998, and it was, everyone had a company, and there were tons of companies. So he's like, I can't remember the company. And I said, you know, <laughs> Eric, no matter, I just got back in the country, like, I'm jet lagged. I'm teaching for the first time, like, I don't have time to, you know, tangle with a startup yeah. right now. Uh, and so, I went on, and I taught that year and finished out my master's, and lo and behold, um, in April, I had been doing my job search, and I couldn't really decide what I wanted to do. I liked teaching, so I had gone to get some teaching opportunities. I had interviewed at big software companies, small software companies, consulting companies. And it was easy for me to pick the best offer of each type, but it was hard for me to integrate across them. And then I really procrastinated on, my, on picking my job, and like April 22nd, I think it was like a Friday night, I remember sitting there eating this bad bowl of pasta and just looking down and being like, I'm so pathetic. Like, it's a Friday night. I'm sitting here eating terrible pasta alone in my dorm room. And kind of just like, I remember my hand kind of plunking on the desk because I also had gotten to the point where I was like, okay, you can't go after more jobs. You can't go interview for more jobs. I had like, you know, 13 offers already. And so I just thought, okay, you can't. And um, when I plunked my hand on the desk, uh, it opened up an email. Uh, And the email was work at Google question mark. And I thought it was just a form letter, you know, having me consider Hmm. another job offer. But then when I looked up and read it, it said, you know, we got your name from some professors that you did similar research last summer, uh, that you're one of the people who are who's graduating that we should talk to. And so I realized right away when I started to read the similarities in my research and what they were doing, that this was the company that Eric Roberts had talked to me about the previous summer and couldn't remember the name of. And I was like, okay, this must be that company. And so I mailed him and I said, I'd I'd like to come and interview, but I promised myself I'll make a a decision by May 1st. So I'll need to interview and and come to a decision here really quickly. Hmm. Uh, So I went in, I think the following Monday or Tuesday to interview. Um, Larry and Sergey came in and interviewed me at the time. I was at a ping pong table. Uh, There were only seven people in the company that day. Uh, And then after they interviewed me, they had to go to do a venture capital pitch. I heard all kinds of people shuffle out. Hmm. And then the office manager, Heather Carnes, walked in uh, and said, I'm sorry, I know it was really important to you that you got through all your interviews today, but the whole company just left to go to one of the venture <laughs> capital pitches. So you're going to have to come back tomorrow. Oh. And when I came back the next day, it was now an eight-person company um, because an eighth person had joined. His name was Amit Patel, and he. Had started, and it was funny because he interviewed me. He's like, I just started this morning, so I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to ask you. Wow. <laughs> but let's just talk. He's like, I'll just throw out some some programming problems, and, and we'll work on them together. And uh, and so anyway, I, um, I did the interviews. And... I was really impressed. Uh, I was really impressed with Larry and Sergey. I I had known a lot of computer science PhD students, and they're always impressive. But Larry and Sergey were notable in that they had made this this big arc from being, you know, computer science PhD students who, you know, don't shower, eat pizza for breakfast, code all day. Right, right. um, To being businessmen who could talk about how their vision for search could really change the world. Hmm. Uh, and could build an, amaz- an amazing business. And even then they were saying, you know, look, we, th- we think we can build a Fortune 500 company. Uh, weighing everything, uh, you know, there was lots of different factors to weigh, and it was still even a hard decision to make. And I it through with a good friend of mine, uh, a guy named Andre Veneer. And uh, Andre, that, that night, when we talked it all through, gave me what I still consider the best advice uh, I've ever gotten, which is you're looking at it all wrong. He's like, you're looking at it as if there's a right choice and a wrong choice. And you've got to find the right choice among these 13 or 14 opportunities. He's like, there's a bunch of really good choices here. And then there's just the one that you pick and commit to and decide you're going to make great and make work. Wow! And he said, so he's like, just go to bed. And when you wake up in the morning, the first thing you think of, pick that. And so I did. I went to sleep. I woke up in the morning. And when I woke up, Google was the first thing I thought of.
0: Wow. All right, so I think you're like twenty four, maybe twenty five at the time. Um, I was twenty
1: three about to turn twenty four. yeah,
0: twenty three, okay. And just just out of curiosity. I mean, at that time, I mean, even today it it's it's less unusual, but it's not you know not as common. But then, I mean, you must have been, if not the only, one of the few female technical hires at the time, right?
1: Uh, I was, well, I was Google's first woman engineer. uh, And I would say for the other startups I went to, it was definitely, you know, something that when you're building a company, you have to keep your eye on in terms of the culture. Yeah. There was another startup that really wanted me. And they had 48 male engineers and I was going to be their first female hire. Wow. (laughs) And like when I went to that company, it was obvious why. Right like yeah. I'm not even someone who tends to I don't think a lot around gender lines. I try right. and not let gender really enter the picture unless it's really an, it's really, you know, a, a core negative issue. Sure. And you know at that at that company with the 48 male engineers and they were saying, you know, look you need to come. You have to be our first woman hire. You know, just the feeling of the place, the way the guys would talk to me even in the interviews about technical concepts like you could just be like, I get it. I understand why it was it's been hard for you to hire women. Hmm. Uh, where Google was the opposite. Google thought they were, they were like, wait, we're like seven engineers already and we don't have a, a woman engineer here yet. We don't want to get yeah. to 10 or 20 people without having a woman engineer. We, we know we need to get um, a woman engineer in here. It meant that we had a much more balanced culture from the very beginning.
0: Did you did you find, given that, you know, the company was so small and you were such an early hire, you were given and you were still so young, but obviously talented and, and had these skills that they needed, um, did you find that they gave you quite a bit of responsibility quickly or did that take time?
1: Uh, they gave everyone a lot of responsibility quickly. And I mean, it did mean that it was an intense learning experience. They really, you know, you got thrown into the... The deep end of the pool, right? I remember came in um, and it would be like, okay, you know, Marissa, you're doing ads. Like not joining the ads team, but like your ads.
0: You're running it.
1: Right? And then, and then obviously Google grew really quickly and, and more formal teams and, and senior people joined. Uh, but, you know, in the beginning in, in June, like that was literally the structure.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it was just, I mean, obviously super exciting, but just Crazy, right? Like, I can imagine. What was it? What was the workload like? Were were you just living there more or less working all the time in those early days?
1: Well, it's a funny story because it was pretty frequent that we would work until two or three in the morning. Um, uh, at the office before heading home most nights um, whether we were de- and you know we weren't always productive that late sort of at the end of the night yeah. you'd be like okay I'll kind of clean up the code I've written today and finish up some code reviews for other people and I also remember conversations we'd have late at night there was one night when that was kind of the exact scene it was like three in the morning we're all sitting on these exercise balls because we thought it was more fun to have the exercise balls in the office to sit on hmm. um, and uh, and Harry, um, Harry Chung, who ran the crawler, uh, was about to start the crawl process up. And at the time, we didn't really have any checkpointing in our systems or any way of sort of backing up. So basically, crawling the web entailed Harry typing about 300 commands in succession. And if he actually mistyped one, you know, he might have to back up and start all over again. Mm. So that meant that, you know, part of the working at Google at the time was making sure that Harry was well caffeinated and feeling really good about that next that next command. <laughs> so we were all just there for moral support, being like, Harry, how are you feeling? Like, do you need more coffee? Like, we got, you know, <laughs> we're like six or seven days into this process and wow. we don't want to make a mistake now. Um, but in that, it was sort of interesting because one, we were all sitting around talking about and, you know could you take pictures of all the physical locations in the world? So we even were, like, you know, brainstorming about things like Street View. Um, you know, there was a the notion of, like, could we have a companion in a browser, much like the one I had worked on during my research, that could help people get even better search results and more personalized search results, which would later go on to become the Google toolbar in Chrome. And we kind of brainstormed all these different ideas that during that, like, late-night chat. And all of a sudden, one of the early engineers jumped off of his wall into the center of the circle and said— you know, I just want everyone to stop because I don't know what happens with the company from here, but it's just never going to be better than it is right now.
0: <laughs> you were given a lot of responsibility in more and more senior roles very quickly, obviously because you were super talented and you were showing a capability to be able to do those things. I, I guess at a certain point, you move you move away from actually, you know, coding and programming and doing that to... To to leadership roles, um, by 2005 you were the VP of Search uh, and User Experience. Did you making the transition from like being a you know an engineer to actually being an engineer, but really being more of a manager of people? Was that was that tricky? Was that hard to to learn?
1: Uh, I would say you know for me the experience was more organic and less segmented than it might seem from mm-hmm. the outside. Um, which is to say when you've got a company growing that fast, you fill in gaps where they're needed. And, you know, now I can look back and say, wow, like that progression was really fast. But at the time I'll tell you, it often felt slow and late where you'd be like, wait, I've Hmm. been, you know, like, thank you for giving me that role. That's the job I've been doing for the last year, year and a half. You know, it's not because people aren't recognizing your efforts. Um, it's just that, you know, there's so much going on at the company. A lot of times you'll be like, oh, wait, did we not formally give that job or that responsibility to that person? Like, we should make that official. Uh, and in terms of my transition out of coding and in to more management, um, it felt, again, more gradual because I think the last time I coded something that actually went up on the Google site formally that was more robust was probably Google News. I did some of the front end work on Google News, which I think was 2002 or 2003, and even after that, I would still do some coding work on the homepage. I would go on to help with the Google Doodles and some of the promotions on the homepage. And be, I was kind of the keeper of the homepage for about a decade there, and I would do some of the coding work there. But so I kind of eased out of coding, you know, more slowly than that. And for me, I would say um, I like managing people. It is something that I needed to to learn about. For, for me, I transitioned from writing code to managing the product as opposed to managing people, really managing how does the product work and look and feel, and then ultimately later starting to actually manage people. And, you know, Eric Schmidt was a terrific mentor through that whole process because he reminded me, I remember early on talking to him and I said, you know, look, Eric, I think at some point I would like to become a manager. You know, right now I'm managing products. You know, Maybe at some point I would manage people. And he said, you know, the, he's like, managing people is important, and it's important to do well. You need to understand how to motivate them and how to orchestrate all the nuts and bolts of a team. He's like, but the goal is leadership. Your goal really should be to lead people. And management is what you need to do in order to effectively lead people. But really think about what it is you want to achieve. and And that has always stuck with me, and I think that the goal is leadership and vision.
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
0: Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit Anthropic.com Claude today. I can remember, I think a lot of people can remember the moment when they stopped using Yahoo as their search engine and then Google. For me it was like 2001. Everybody was talking about this new thing Google and you know Yahoo had been my homepage and that's what everyone used and I remember around that time making that transition to Google and then over the you know the next decade Google really became a more prominent at least search engine than Yahoo and and around 2011 they were looking for a new leader, a new CEO. When they approached you, because you were a prominent executive at Google to lead the company, um, and you took the job. Tell me what, before you got to Yahoo, what was going on at the company? What What was the sort of the state of, of affairs at Yahoo in 2011?
1: Well, I think it helps to go back to September of
0: 2011.
1: Um, mm-hmm. I... Always been a big fan of Carol Bartz, you know, amazing CEO Mm -hmm. of Autodesk, and then and then of Yahoo. She and I share our Wisconsin roots, Uh, and so I had always really looked up to Carol, and and was really sad and shocked at sort of the way that she had to exit Yahoo in September. And I remember reading about it in the news that morning and being upset about it. And then um, a good friend of mine came for his. One on one, a guy named Gabriel Stricker, who worked in in Google's um, PR department and communications department. And he closed the door and he said, Before we start our one on one, can we just talk about something? He was like, Yahoo CEO, raise your hand. And I was like, and I remember like putting my hands out in an X in front of him. And I was like, No, 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 no. I was like, That board is, they don't know what they want. Are they trying to rebuild the company? Are they trying to sell it off for parts? Right. They, you know, like Carol's incredibly talented and, you know, that just fell apart. Like and this board is just confused. The leadership of the company is confused. Like and he was like, no, look, it's mail. It's maps. It's mobile. It's social. It's everything you've ever done. It's news in a new context. He's like he's like, this is the job for you. And I was like, no, 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 no. Mm. Um, That fall they went on. uh, They hired Scott Thompson um, by about uh, January and by, uh, April or early May, he had resigned. Hmm. Um, and at that point I thought to myself, oh, like, you know, Gabe told me last fall that I really should go for this and I didn't. And, um, you know, it's maybe I should, but interestingly at that point I was five months pregnant. Hmm. And so I was like, you know, it's just too bad because it, it's a great job and the board has gone through a lot of changes recently, and so maybe they are trying to figure out what they want to be. And if Scott yeah. wasn't a good fit, then maybe I am. But I was like, Nope, like you're having a baby in October and you know, you like you're you're working on Google Maps for Apple and just stay focused and you know. So I didn't raise my hand, I didn't go to them. Uh and then about six weeks later I got a phone call. Um from uh, an executive recruiter and he said, I'm calling you about this other opportunity and it's a CEO role and it's in your neighborhood and it's in the domain that you've worked in. And then all of a sudden at the end, he said, it's Yahoo, are you interested? Wow. And I was like, I just heard myself say yes. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: and, I said, and, and he said, well, what would you need to to be sure that you would want to be considered? And I said, I, I, I want to meet with the board and I want to get a feel for do they really want to... Um, Work on products and making yeah. Yahoo's products relevant again in the mobile age. And if they're interested in products, I could be a very good fit. And if they're interested in financial engineering, then I'm not the right person. But I mm-hmm. need, to, you know, I'll need to know based on uh, on the board. And so I met when I met with the nomination and governance committee, uh, who was leading the the CEO search. Uh, and it was really clear that they did want to work on products. Uh, and then ultimately went on to interview with the whole board. Yeah. And it was all very secretive. I remember the day of my interview, they told me um, I had to stay home from work, so I, I came up with some reason I to not go to work. And then they said at 10 o'clock, a black town car will pull up to your driveway, and you're <laughs> supposed to say Project Cardinal, and they'll say Project Cardinal, and you'll get in, and you'll be taken to an undisclosed location for this interview. <laughs>
0: wow. Um, and
1: it was all very it was all very cloak and dagger. Um uh but you know it all kind of happened like clockwork uh and then ultimately they decided that I was the right candidate
0: Yeah T- Tell me what what was it about that opportunity that attracted you at the time because you you must have known that Yahoo was was going through some tough a tough period that that they were facing some pretty strong headwinds
1: Uh for sure um and One, I like hard work. It looked like hard work, um, and it was. Uh, And it's such a compelling brand. It's such a compelling company and story, and especially the people. Um, And, you know, especially for me, right, I had a a glorious plan of having my first child going on a six-month paid maternity leave with stock resting the whole time. And to give that up, you know, it would have to be something really spectacular. But Yahoo as a company... Was that, and yes, it was also really troubled. Um, but um, I love art, probably because of my mom. And um, I talked once to an art dealer, and I said, you know, who, how do you decide which artists, you know, work you're going to represent and which ones you don't? And he said, you know, look, one, I only work with people who are are nice because life is too short to work with people who aren't nice. But two, with art. If an artist isn't nice, you feel it in their work when you look at it. Mm. And I think that's really true. And I also think it's true for most things that get created and built. You can tell a little bit about the disposition and the values of the people behind it in the way it works and feels and looks. Mm. And I think it's really true for technology as well, in terms of like, how thoughtful are the people? Are they fun? What are their values like? And, you know, you could just say, wow, you know, Yahoo's board has been really, you know, really all over the place in terms of direction in recent years The leadership has. But the products themselves have a levity and a softness and a funness to them and a thoughtfulness. And they're so usable that there's just got to be good people there. And when I got to Yahoo, I was really pleasantly surprised because despite all the chaos at the top, the people who work there Are amazing. They're talented and they're nice and they're fun. And you really feel that in the products. And it it was really true in the culture and the team when you got there.
0: Yeah. I think when when you arrived, there were, I mean, the company was still kind of dealing with like boardroom disagreements and executive turnover and obviously, you know, sort of competition from Google and Facebook for, you know, for eyeballs and ad dollars. Um, And when you arrived, there were people who were literally putting up posters of your face in their cubicles uh that was like a, a sort of a stylized image of you with the word hope underneath there was a lot of hope in your arrival did that feel like pressure to you or did you just think wow this is amazing like i you know people believe in me i can we can do this
1: I didn't know about the Hope poster at the time. But, you know, to set the stage, yes, I was the seventh CEO in 61 months. So oh, the, the company wow. had gone through seven CEOs in about wow. five years. The company, between January and June, had experienced 24% attrition across the whole employee base. Wow. So one in four people had exited the company in the preceding six months. Um, there had been, you know, there. it turns out there had been no performance. Reviews really. Um, basically, people were rated as high performers, medium, or low, and ninety percent of people got medium ratings. So you really couldn't even tell like who were who, who was good and who was bad, and it ultimately meant that like when I got there, I heard all these horror stories of people of like the highest performer on a team getting let go, and so there were, there were some people where I had to go and beg them to come back. And so you know, for me, uh, I knew it was a big challenge. I went there to work hard, um, but I didn't. For me, you know, someone, you know, came up to me on the first or second day and said, okay, well, when are we going to do your all hands? And I said, I'm sorry, what? They said, your all hands. Like, they're like every new CEO who shows up has, you know, their dog and pony show where they trot out their new strategy and say how they're going to save the company. And I just, I said, "Um, I wasn't wasn't planning on having an all hands, Uh, at least not yet. Um, And he was like, what? And I was like... I was like, look, if if the solution on how to turn the company around was easy or obvious or could be delivered on day two of the job, someone would have done it a long time ago. Yeah. And, you know, I was like, I think if we're really going to make a run at this, it's going to take all the best thinking of everybody here because you guys know a lot more about the problems this company has than I do on my second day. So I was like, I need to find out what the people here think. I need to get more ideas from people outside. Yeah. My first email to the company basically said, you know, yes, I'm here. I'm excited to be here. But if you're doing something right now, please keep doing it. <laughs> right. Like it's going to take us a while to kind of get through everything and figure out what activities should be stopped and what should be started and and things like that. Um uh, but really, it was about how do I get integrated and hear from as many people as possible as as quickly as possible.
0: You know, I'm thinking about like your the sort of the arc of your life up to this point, and for sure, I am certain you had failures that we haven't really talked about. But by and large, you 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 had sort of gone from success to success. You were a great high school student, and then Stanford, and then. At Google, and then elevated to these positions of of, of of you know leadership, and really just success after success, and you get to Yahoo, and and you are like the sixth or seventh CEO in sixty months. I mean, the deck is stacked against you. Like by any measure, you were not going to succeed there. Did that cross your mind? Were you nervous about the possibility of this being something that wasn't going to work out?
1: Well, and, um, I would say the actual experience of all of the different events you just talked about is quite different from the inside. You know, every day has, you know, a peak in a pit. It's, now I have, little, I have three small children, six-year-old and, and three-year-old twins. And it's sort of interesting because we make a point. Every night at dinner, we talk about highlights and lowlights, and we call them peaks and pits. And it's mm. interesting because when, when we have family come to visit and people join in, they'll say, you know, do you have to have a pit every day? And I say, yes, every day you have to have a pit. And every day we always state a pit because it's important to realize that every day does have its highs and its lows. Yeah. But you're in charge of how you feel about the low, and you're in charge of what you learn from the low. And it's important for the kids to understand that every day you fail and sometimes yeah. you fail big and sometimes you fail small and you it's what you learn from that and how you recover from that that really matters. Yeah. Uh and so, you know, I wasn't I didn't think of it so much as like what if I fail because it didn't really come from a place of fear. Yeah. Um it did come from a place of challenge. Hmm. Right? I do remember, you know, um as I was leaving, I, you know, my position at Google, I loved it. It was also very lucrative. Um, my first offer t- for to be Yahoo CEO was a lot less than I was making at Google, and I was like, "Look, I'm, I'm not a mercenary. I don't want to make a lot more, but I'm leaving a job that, you know, is that I love and I've done for 13 years and really grown into and grown with the company. I didn't go in with an, a blind eye to that, but it was really much more. I, I really viewed it much more as a challenge." Um, and a puzzle and a problem to solve as opposed to a you know um you know situation where I was thinking about failure all the time.
0: Yeah. I'm I'm curious, Marissa, because you you were obviously known in your field, like people knew who you were in in Palo Alto and the Silicon Valley, but like all of a sudden you are on the world stage, like you're on covers of magazines, like you are um on cable news, you are talked about all over the place. Was that weird?
1: Um, I I didn't think about it. Huh. Um, I really, I really didn't. I was, as I said, heads down at Yahoo, right? The company was expecting me to turn up with a plan on day two, which I yeah. was obviously not ready to do. And I would go on to have a baby eight weeks later and become a first-time mom in the middle of this. Um, and so I was just heads down in the work not looking out at the external perception uh, of it at all. And I continued that way for at least the first six months. And I will say I felt productive enough and free enough in terms of what we were doing inside the company. After those six months, I was like, this was great. I'm actually going to put off doing any press for the whole first year. So if you look back, Hmm. now I can look back and say, yes, I guess there was a lot of media written about the company and about me during that time. I really tried to stay oblivious to all of it. And I didn't actually participate in anything for more than a, until more than a year after I joined the, the company. I didn't do any interviews or any press.
0: Which you almost have to do because otherwise it would have been totally distracting. I mean, the clothes you wore were scrutinized. The, the fact that, you, you know, you, you didn't take a leave for as long as some people thought you should or it was too long for other people, um, you know, every decision that you made, every little announcement you made was scrutinized. Uh, it would have been distracting,
1: that- but even worse, it would have been wrong. Yeah. And, you know, and yes, it was frustrating because I think a lot of those decisions were misunderstood. Would I have rather have taken a long maternity leave? Absolutely. That's what I had planned at Google. Um, and, you know, if I had stayed there, that's what it would have ultimately happened. But, you know, Yahoo just wasn't in a position where it could have had its CEO out for any length of time.
0: From from a from like a priority perspective in those first in that first year or so, what what were you trying to focus on the most? I mean, were you trying to focus on profits? Were you trying to focus on monthly visitors? Or were you trying to focus on on acquisitions? What what was the thing that you really felt like you had to do?
1: The first year, I had to figure out how to keep the great people who were there, and I had to figure out how to get more great people in. And I talked a lot about a flywheel that I really believe in, which is you hire great people, they build great products, those great products attract consumers, those consumers attract advertisers, the advertisers pay you, then you take the money and you reinvest it in the people, you hire even better people and more people, and they build better products, and they get more consumers, and and you get this very positive flywheel. And if you look at you know, Google and Facebook and others in the space, they ha- they're on that very positive flywheel, right? And because you've got a business that's really working and attracting all of the users and the advertisers, it makes it much easier to attract employees. And so the focus was the people, it was on hiring, and, and ultimately it developed into a talent acquisition strategy because over the years at Yahoo, I would go on to buy approximately four dozen companies Right. Um, and some of them were big strategic acquisitions where they changed the overall course of the company and the, and our product offering. But a lot of them, the vast majority of them, were talent acquisitions. You know, for you know, in in you know, in some, in some cases a few hundred thousand dollars, a few million dollars, where most of the value was actually in the forward stock packages for the employees. So they were big right. dollar numbers, but they were basically bringing in. Teams that could hit the ground running.
0: Did you find? I mean, coming into a company like Yahoo, I mean, you you essentially were tasked with this huge responsibility with saving this company, right? And that is a that's an enormous challenge, right? That's a a, a possibly an impossible task. Did you find that the people around you, the people at Yahoo? really believed in that mission or was there i don't know was there was there doubt did you sense that there was there was sort of doubt baked into the into the culture of the company
1: i'll i'll answer that question in two parts one is with an anecdote and another is with sort of an uh, like a a sort of a process we went through um on my fourth or fifth day at the company i'm an introvert by nature, it was hard for me to do this, but in trying yeah. to get integrated as deeply in the company as possible, I would make a point. I would go down to the cafeteria, get my lunch in the lines with everybody else, and I would sit in the cafeteria for about two hours <laughs> and just like, and anybody who wanted to walk up and say whatever they wanted to say to me could walk up and say whatever they were going to say to me. And I went and we, I went on that way for probably like two to four weeks when I first got there of just, you know, anybody who wanted to come up and talk to me could come up and talk to me Um and when I was in the lunch line, somebody came over and tapped the front of my tray—a little fast tap—to get, get my attention. And I looked up, and he said, "Is it go time?" And I had just gotten the report right before lunch that twenty four percent of the company had left in the previous eating five months. And I said, wow. "No, don't go. I'm, I'm I've only been here for four days. Please don't go." <laughs> like, I thought he was saying, "Like I'm 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 about to leave. Like, lady, I'm leaving. Just let you know. Like today's my last day." And I and so I because I had sort of um you know departures on the brain. And he said, no, that's not what I'm asking. He's like, we've all been sitting here waiting for a few years for management and the board to figure itself out. Is it go time? Can we run? Can we actually execute on the ideas that we've been excited about that we think could matter? And I was like, by all means, go run. Like, don't let me get in the way. Hmm. The second piece is, you know, there is, you know, we basically had to come up with a process and we looked at two different things. One was performance and ability. And the other was attitude. You had people who you're like, wait, they're amazing in terms of what they can get done. And they've got a great attitude. They're all in it. They're just in it yeah. to win it. And that's easy. Right. Just keep them going. Right. If you have a bad attitude and you're not a good performer, it's also easy. Right? They, they should absolutely not be there. And we had to, you know, clear out a lot of, you know, what people would probably call dead wood at the beginning. And then it's the two in-between cases that are tricky. And what we basically did is I I really think that if you've got a great attitude, but you're not performing that well, it's leadership's job to find you a role where you can be really effective. Essentially, that employee, in my view, is usually miscast. And then there were other people where you'd say, okay, like if they're a great performer, but they have a terrible attitude, our attitude was, you know, give them six months and watch it. But if at the end of six months, their attitude hasn't really turned around and and it really seems like you know, it's not going to. It's sad because they're performing well, but they probably have to go.
0: Yeah. What did you think? Like, did you see your role as CEO to stay positive, focused, cheer people on and kind of no matter? Because you you had access to information about the company, which showed mixed results, right? Some acquisitions did OK. Some didn't do well. Obviously, Tumblr is an example. The stock price was up, but the profits were down. And despite that, did you feel like it It was your job to go out there and to always show a positive face?
1: No, I felt like it was my job to try and get us on that positive flywheel. Huh. Right. Hire the right people, help pick the right products in the areas to invest in, figure out how to attract more of the users to these new products Make sure that we've got advertisers that are lined up and making the business work. Fully, was my job to try and get that positive flywheel started, and and we had early successes there. Right, our traffic grew, our users grew. We built a beautiful suite of products. One of the compliments I'll treasure forever was, um, you know, about six months before I ended up leaving, Jerry Yang, uh, who was the you know really the 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 head of products for a long time, basically came to me and the founder said. Um, you know, the product suite's never been in as good a shape as it is right now.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I mean the, the suite of products was obviously a, a success. I mean, and there were others. I mean, I, th- I think the stock price doubled at, uh, at a certain point from the time you started. But I have to assume that at some point along the way, you must have come to the realization that Yahoo, like as a standalone company, just couldn't be saved. Was there a particular point or moment um, uh,
1: in December of 2015 we had uh, been planning since January of that year the past 11 months to execute a tax-free spin-off of our Alibaba assets and so you know at Yahoo the story was complicated because we had both the operating business with its users that were increasingly mobile and growing to more than a billion and our uh, internet advertising business that was stable and beginning to start to show starting to show some signs of growth, not nearly the growth that some of our competitors had, but some growth. Uh, and then we also had two very valuable investments, an investment in Yahoo Japan and an investment in Alibaba. And by 2015 that had really become the focus of the majority of our external shareholders. Uh, and as I said we had ex- we had developed a plan to execute a tax-free spin-off. Uh, that plan was met with some resistance, not I guess not that surprisingly, on the part of the IRS and in parts of, um, in, in some ways, in, in China um, to try and get some of that tax revenue. Uh, we ultimately had come up with a plan that, based on our reading of the tax code and our law firm's reading of the tax code, was going to save approximately $10 billion in taxes. Um, and... Uh, In December of 2015, um, after those 11 months of planning, our board uh, canceled the uh, tax free spinoff. And so from that point on, we said, okay, what are the other options? And one of the cleaner and faster things to execute. Was the sale of the operating business, basically sell the operating business out of the entity and therefore leave behind an investment company that holds the Yahoo Japan investment and the Alibaba um, investment. And at that point, I would say that is really when it became clear to me that we weren't going to be able to achieve the outcomes I had hoped for for the operating company um, in terms of a of a, um, a turnaround as an independent company um, you know to put it in context in the in the greater sense for me uh, we made that decision we announced it on CNBC on December 9th um, uh, of 2015 my twins were born that night actually at one in the morning Wow and so I do remember that that uh, decision and that realization settling on me you know over the course of you know the following Week or two, Um, but you know there was there was a lot overall going on, and so I will say, can I remember an exact moment when it really hit me that uh, we would be selling the operating business and giving up the chance for an independent turnaround? I, I don't really, but I also you know those kinds of decisions are things that are arrived at over. Weeks, not minutes. Yeah, and so you know that it became obvious sometime between December of 2015 and the end of January 2016, when we formed a, a formal committee to assess those alternatives, that that was the the, the direction that um, that the company was heading.
0: So, Yahoo sold uh, its core business to Verizon for about four um, and a half billion dollars, and you stayed on while the sale was was being negotiated. And then you stepped down, I think, in June of 2017. If you were – Marissa, if, if you were sort of assessing your time as the CEO of Yahoo, um, and you were doing like a 360-degree review of your own time. How would you assess your own role as as a leader, as the leader of Yahoo?
1: I would say, you know, overall, I feel really good about the team we were able to attract and the products. As I said, I will treasure Jerry Yang's comment forever. Um, I feel really good about the products and the strategy and the path that we uh, overall um, set ourselves upon. I feel like it was a test where, you know, pencils down was called too early, right? And um, there was a comment that when I first got the CEO ship, uh, Eric Schmidt said to me that definitely rang true at the end where he said, you know, it's it's interesting as CEO how few decisions you really need to make. Because he said, you know, you can actually delegate most of the decisions and more de- the more decisions you delegate, the better and the better those decisions will get made. He's like, but there's a few decisions where you as CEO, you have to make them and you have to make them absolutely perfectly. Um, and I definitely feel that, you know, I wish we had had more time but ultimately, you know, our our efforts uh, ended up being uh, cut short and we weren't able to see some of how those investments were ultimately going to work out. And I would say for the investments that we did see work out, a lot of them worked out really well. They weren't all perfect. There certainly were some misses. But um, seeing the condition that we handed the team and the business off to in Verizon performed really, really well for them for uh, the first few years, and I would say even during the sale and close period at Yahoo, which lasted about eighteen months, you know the the business outperformed where our internal expectations were. Which, you know you know, as I said, that that wasn't necessarily obvious at the moment. We had to decide whether or not to sell the company, um, but hindsight is twenty twenty.
2: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365 day returns.
0: Do you you think, did you ever feel like you were unfairly criticized as a CEO at times because you are a woman?
1: Uh, As I said, I tend not to focus on the gender aspect of it. I think that you know, I'm certainly not perfect, and there were a lot of decisions that des- that deserved criticism. Uh, I feel like there certainly were times when, you know, there was a decision that was misunderstood from the outside, um, that, you know, with more context wouldn't have been criticized the same way, but I, I think, I feel it has more to do with the context that was offered as opposed to the gender. The only thing I will say is certainly there were times where, like, the word choice around some of the criticism would have a very gender-focused bend. So, you know, I think, you know, people might agree or disagree with my overall acquisition strategy. I get that. And that's something that investors and the public and the company should debate. And so I was prepared for criticism on that. That said, I don't think they would call men buying companies a shopping spree. Right. And in fact, now, with the benefit of hindsight, you can look at other companies that were active acquiring at the same time and most of the other male CEOs bought more companies and spent more money and never had the word shopping spree used with them. Yeah. So there were things like that where, to me, that's just very clear on its face that that was a gender loaded criticism. That said, you know, criticizing are we buying too many companies? Are we buying them too fast? Are we integrating them properly? All that is reasonable and rational criticism for a CEO. As I said, if anything, for me, it was more the, some of the word choices and the and the particular slants put on it, not the fact that there was criticism overall.
0: After your experience um, running, I mean, you are still young. I mean, you were a young, you know, ex-CEO um, and really at a sort of a, a an age when you would be recruited as a potential CEO and probably even young to be recruited as a potential CEO even now, could could you ever imagine running a Fortune 100 company or Fortune 500 company again? Could, would you want to do that again?
1: For me, it's not about Fortune 100 and Fortune 500 and the size of the team, um, you know, and the size of the business. Uh, I realized when we sold the company to Verizon, we needed to write the blog post that would basically announce it to the world. And at the end of it, we really said, you know, Yahoo is a company that changed the world. And very few companies do. There's a lot of very successful businesses out there, but there's only a few that change what people do all day and how they think about things. And Yahoo is the company that popularized the internet. Hmm. And, you know, Google, I, you know, I've been privileged to be a part of two different companies that changed the world, in my view, in a really fundamental way. Yahoo popularized the Internet. Google absolutely democratized information uh, in a way that no other invention to date has. And, you know, for me, that's what motivates me. I want to be a part of something where, you know, you're making a real impact on people for the positive and so would i would I love to lead something where something like that is happening? Absolutely. but there's also a lot of companies where there might be a great business there, but even though they have a lot of size and scale, I wouldn't be that excited about it
0: hmm. do Do you think that you were born to to be a leader, or do you think you learned how to become a leader?
1: Um, I think it's probably. Um, A little both. I don't think I'm a natural-born leader. If you had asked me in college, do I think I was going to be a CEO? Even when I started at Google, would I ever be a CEO? The answer would have been no. If you had grabbed me the first day and told me that this is how it would all work out. At the time, Google was nothing, and Yahoo was the king of the internet. Um, And if you had said, like, this is where things are going to be 20 years later, I I would be really, really shocked. Um, But I feel that, you know, you... Gather the best of your own experiences and form leadership lessons from those. I don't prescribe to the idea that you can be taught how to overall like run a company, any any company well. You know, I think that it, there's certainly an inclination there, but a lot of that is, you know, born out of necessity and circumstance as you go through life.
0: That's Marissa Meyer, former CEO of Yahoo. After leaving the company, Marissa co-founded a new company. It's called Lumi Labs, and it's working on building new products enabled by artificial intelligence. And coincidentally, Lumi Labs is based out of the same exact building where Marissa first worked when she was hired at Google back in 1999. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built-In Productions.